Welcome to the One God Report podcast. This episode, we begin an exegesis of the prologue of the Gospel of John, that is the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John, called the prologue. In this podcast, we'll give more evidence for why the prologue should be understood as an introduction to the ministry of Jesus the Messiah, and not as a direct reference to the Genesis creation. For the exegesis of the prologue of John, I've invited a, a friend by the name of Rivers of Eden, more about him in just a minute. I thought to give just a little heads up of certain topics to look for that we begin to discuss in this episode. One, we'll talk more about how the phrase, in the beginning, and the word, word, in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, that these words are best interpreted by comparing them first and foremost with other uses in the Gospel of John and in other Johannine literature, and then in other New Testament and Old Testament literature. We'll also talk about the basic overall three-paragraph structure of the prologue of the Gospel of John, and that even though past tense verbs dominate the prologue description of events that happened in the past, in each of the three paragraphs there's one present tense verb that brings the scene into the present. And this structure and these present tense verbs are additional evidence that the prologue is introducing the historical record of the ministry of Jesus the Messiah. We'll also talk more about how John the Baptist plays a significant role in the prologue, and this is as well strong evidence that the prologue is discussing the person and ministry of Jesus the Messiah and is not starting at the beginning in creation. And then we'll also compare some of the grammar and syntax or word order between the prologue of the Gospel of John and the book of Genesis, and we'll see that actually the grammar and the word order between these two chapters is actually very different. For instance, the words create and make, which are prominent in the Genesis creation account, are not in the prologue at all. And neither is the word logos, the word for word in Greek. It's not found in the Genesis creation account or its equivalent in Hebrew, devar. It's not in the Genesis creation account. So these are evidences that the prologue is not discussing directly the Genesis creation. We'll also see how the prologue uses language that is reiterated later in the body of the Gospel of John, which as well is evidence that the prologue is describing the ministry of the human Messiah, Jesus. And we'll see too that the allusions in the prologue of John are not limited to the Genesis creation account. We'll see that there's an allusion to the Abraham-Isaac narrative in Genesis 22, and there are allusions to Moses and the Israelite exodus from Egypt. This is evidence that the author is alluding to a wider array of Old Testament parallels, not just the Genesis creation account, and that the prologue is not a commentary on Genesis creation. So, if the phrase, in the beginning of John 1.1, is not a direct reference to the Genesis creation, the so-called deity of Christ, or Trinitarian Christological interpretation of the first chapter of John, is wrong. Welcome to the One God Report podcast. I'm Bill Schlegel, and we have a special guest today. He goes by the name or the nomaker, Rivers of Eden, somewhat of a fixture on certain Facebook groups. And 
I've asked him to join us here today because he and I have a similar view about the prologue to the Gospel of John, and we'd like to start in exegeting this important first chapter for the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John. Some of our listeners will know Rivers. He's from New York City, right? He's going to be forthright, let me put it that way. Uh, even now, every now and then, uh, he'll kind of call me out here and there, but every now and then I'll call him out. I, I didn't tell you this, Rivers, but one time there was a listener on a Facebook group that chastised me for being too abrupt with you. And I said, well, Rivers is kind of my buddy. If I need to be a little <laughs> abrupt with him, he, he can handle it. So I had to kind of explain the background. That you're, you're, you, got a little, you got some tough skin. So if I say, oh, Rivers, I think you're off on that one, uh, you'll be able to handle that. I think uh, he's uh, ready to take it as well as to dish it up. Another reason I, I wanted to ask Rivers to uh, come on here and talk about John chapter 1 is because I can see he knows Greek well. I don't know Greek as well, so I'm interested to hear and understand some of the insights we can get by looking at the chapter in Greek. I think it's important in the Gospel of John, especially this prologue, which is perhaps the number one chapter for the deity of Christ theology to go to, to say, oh, here, Jesus is God. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and John chapter 1, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. They see that as an incarnation of a pre-existing divine figure now becoming a human being. This is, for most Trinitarians, if they don't know any other verse about why they believe that Jesus is God, these are the ones you go to. So this is like, you can't argue anything else. I mean, here, it says right here, the word, this preexistent God figure somehow. Let's not have to worry about how we have two different gods, but that word became flesh. And that means he took on humanity or he changed into a human. For most of the Trinitarian world, this is the evidence that Jesus is God. And I think in our discussion here today, we'll be able to see, well, you know what? There might be a different way to understand these, the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John. If you're a first-time listener, I have given some introductory lectures on the Gospel of John in some earlier podcasts. For instance, we can see John, the author himself, tells us that he didn't record the signs that Jesus did to show us that Jesus is God. Rather, he tells us he recorded the signs that Jesus did so that we might know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So I believe the author of the Gospel of John, I'll, I'll believe his understanding of why he recorded what Jesus did. He tells us, why should I believe somebody who comes along later and says, no, 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 no. The author is telling us he wrote to show us that Jesus is God. I said, no, hold on. No, that's not what the author himself said. And we talked about different ways in which the word beginning, the first verse of John's gospel says, in the beginning. Now, is this a direct reference to the creation of Genesis? Or how else could the beginning be? Or what kind of a beginning is this? So there's a whole lesson I've done on that. If you haven't heard it, I probably would recommend listening to that because we're going to skip over some of those preliminary things now and uh, jump right in to exegeting uh, these verses. Now, the prologue of John, as this is sometimes called, the first 18 verses, the introduction to the Gospel of John, somewhat naturally breaks down into three paragraphs. 
the first paragraph being verses 1 through 5, and then the next paragraph being verses 6 through 13, and the third paragraph, verses 14 through 18. Now, we're going to start in the first part, the first paragraph, and we'll see how time goes. We may take a little bit longer because we don't want to miss anything, and I, I think we, we want to take the time to uncover every stone here in these first few verses of the Gospel of John. So, maybe before we get going, Rivers, do you want to say anything about yourself? You went to an evangelical seminary. That I know about you. What else would you like to say about yourself biographically? Uh, not much, but I, I just wanted to address uh, what you brought up earlier about my reputation. I just want to say to people that uh, I'm just being a critical evaluator of all different perspectives that are offered in the conversations taking place with biblical Unitarians, and of course, occasionally Arians and Trinitarians and others who get involved in those conversations. It's not my intent to uh, offend anyone personally. Uh, there isn't anyone that I dislike. Um, however, I feel that in these conversations is to provide the same kind of critical feedback that I'm internalizing for myself. When I'm doing exegetical research, I'm asking the same tough questions. When I get an idea that pops up in my head, I try to step back and say, okay, what are the implications for that idea in other areas of Christology or theology? You know, what questions would I anticipate that a Trinitarian or an Arian might offer to me as an objection? So when I'm interacting, you know, I don't have time to make a website. Uh, I don't have time to do uh, podcasts of my own. So I'm getting involved in the conversation and considering these different perspectives and just trying to get people to think about the kind of critical questions that need to be asked when we evaluate evidence. Just like if we were solving a crime, you know, we have bits and pieces of evidence and to get to the bottom of what happened, we need to consider different perspectives and different ways of putting the pieces of the puzzle together in order to get to the truth. And I believe we're all sincerely trying to do that and everyone is at a different place. So I feel that my role is to, is to contribute what I can in terms of um, offering exegetical analysis and exegetical information. And I believe, as I've said many times on uh, the discussion forums, that everyone is at a different place and has to take a look at the evidence for himself and make up his own mind. I'm really looking forward to this conversation today with Bill because Bill and I do agree on some significant things about the prologue and the historical context and the literary context of the prologue that um, is different than what uh, the approach has been for some of the other biblical Unitarians who are out there teaching and making podcasts and doing debates. And so I think I want to drill deeper into these verses, as Bill said, because he and I don't need to uh, debate about whether there's pre-existence, we don't need to debate about what the beginning refers to. We don't need to debate so much about what the word is referring to. And so I'm looking forward to this, and uh, I hope it's beneficial to others who listen, at, at least in terms of giving some additional depth and information to the particular perspective that's you know kind of gained some momentum over the past uh, couple of years among biblical Unitarians because social media has taken the conversation far beyond the usual uh, approach of using Trinitarian commentaries to develop 
a perspective or, you know, books that were written 30 or 40 years ago by leading biblical Unitarian figures, uh, which were the only source of information for a lot of people for a long time. So I'll let you lead the way, Bill. And we talked a little bit beforehand and kind of decided how we were going to approach this, but I'll let you lead the way and, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll try to contribute whatever I can. Great. I would just add to that, too, that our discussion is as well with the deity of Christ theologians, because for them, this is going to be something probably that they haven't really heard of or even thought about, that the beginning of John chapter 1, verse 1 is not a direct reference to the Genesis creation. Rather, it's an illusion. John is intentionally recalling the language of Genesis to say that now in Jesus, God is working a new beginning. Yes, that's an allusion to the Genesis creation, where God created Adam, and through Adam everything that has gone on that we've got in our, our whole world system now, through one man. And now John is saying, you know that new beginning that the prophets look forward to? Righteousness on earth and restoration, redemption of not only mankind, but all of creation. It's starting in Jesus. Now, I don't think most Trinitarians really think about that. In the scholarly world, they do give lip service to that idea. And you can read the Trinitarian or deity of When I say Trinitarian, I'm going to basically say deity of Christ. Right? Because I know there are some people that are not Trinitarians that believe in the deity of Christ or deity of Jesus. So when I say Trinitarian, I'm really saying as well deity of Christ, theologians. They'll say, oh yeah, we see this idea of a new beginning. And, and Rivers and I are going to disagree a little bit on the idea of new creation. I think I'm not ashamed to say that this is new creation that the Gospel of John is telling us about. I think Rivers eventually can put a little bit of reservation on that from your own perspective. But I, see, I, I see this as John saying, hey, you know, that God that started everything back there in the book of Genesis, that same God is at work here now with a new beginning in Jesus Christ. So this beginning that we're going to read about that John introduces in the prologue here, these first 18 verses, it's the beginning, a new beginning, that involves who Jesus is. That would be the ministry of Jesus, the life of Jesus. This is the beginning that John wants to describe to us. Can so, I interject something? Bill? Absolutely. Um, one thing I think that that uh, people may not see is that this term NRK that's translated in the beginning in John 1.1, it's a fairly common phrase. I think sometimes even biblical Unitarians give the impression that it can only refer to uh, either Proverbs 8.23, where it appears, or Genesis 1.1. You know, both of those passages have NRK, and they use in the beginning. But I think sometimes people fail to realize that it's a fairly common phrase. It's used several other times in the uh, New Testament. For example, in uh, Philippians 4.15, Paul uses NRK in the beginning to refer to when he began himself preaching the gospel after he left Macedonia. It's also used in Acts 11.15, where it refers to in the beginning when the Holy Spirit had first come upon the apostles at Pentecost. Mm -hmm. NRK is also used 30 other times in the Old Testament where none of those have anything to do with the Genesis creation. It's used 
you know, several times to refer to the beginning of the reign of kings. Uh, it's used in Ezekiel 42.10, for example, to refer to the beginning of a wall. Uh, in Ruth 1.22, it's used to refer to the beginning of a, of a harvest. So we shouldn't be overstating that this term NRK is an obvious reference to the time of the Genesis creation because it's just a basic, and this came up in your uh, one of the conversations that you recently had, this idea of the beginning, there are many beginnings in Scripture. And we have to be careful even in John 1.1 not to simply determine that it can only refer to one particular beginning. It's important that we take into account these other uses of NRK. Another thing I want to point out along the lines, too, is that in John 1.1 and in Genesis 1.1, we have in the beginning, right? In the beginning, God created. In the beginning was the word. But this same phrase, NRK in Greek, is also translated at the beginning and from the beginning. So when we look in the fourth gospel in other places and we see from the beginning and at the beginning, those are just variations of the same uh, use of this basic word beginning. Okay, it, it doesn't have to be translated in the beginning. It, this, this John 1, 1 could be at the beginning was the word. So it's important to bear those things in mind because I just want to state this and and I hope this sinks in with people and, and as we further discuss this. When we're doing biblical exegesis and interpretation, first of all, we have to be really careful not to isolate grammar because grammar always is subject to context. Context is the greater aspect yeah. of interpretation mm -hmm. that determines meaning. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, is that a, the, the, the best option of interpretation or a valid interpretation is not about what's possible. Okay, it's about what's the most probable. And I think sometimes I get concerned with biblical Unitarians in point because they'll tend to dismiss a lot of evidence, for example, in the fourth gospel about how you've shown, Bill, in your podcast, the writer actually uses the term beginning in various ways and how in other places in the fourth gospel it, 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 it isn't used to refer to the Genesis creation. But then we come to the prologue and some people will insist that, well, the only obvious meaning it could have in John 1.1 is the time of the Genesis creation. And, of course, that's possible, but it's unlikely when we look at how many other different uses of beginning are found in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and especially in the primary context of the fourth gospel mm -hmm. and other references that you made in one of your earlier podcasts in other gospel accounts that are dealing with the same historical content about the time of John's baptism that used beginnings in a, in a different way. Yeah, the other three gospels basically all start with a beginning, the beginning. I mean, you can look at Matthew, he has a Genesis, but Mark and Luke all have the word, the beginning, in their in the first sentences of their gospel. We don't necessarily want to go over all the references and why contextually it's best to understand the beginning here as maybe an illusion, as an illusion to Genesis, but not directly uh, relating to Genesis. But it is important because in some ways I would say really there are two issues here, Rivers. The first thing is it's an assumption to say in the beginning is a reference to Genesis, and it's best not to understand the in the beginning, the NRK of the Gospel of John as a direct reference to the Genesis creation. If this NRK 
in the Gospel of John is not a direct reference to the Genesis creation. Trinitarianism is wrong. Trinitarian is a drift at sea with no mast, no sail, nothing, because that is essential for the Trinitarian doctrine. The other issue in the prologue here is if the word, right, the Greek word for word is logos, if the logos is a person, if it's, it's describing a person, which Trinitarianism and deity of Christ theology would say, yes, it is. There's a person being described here. They'll say it's a pre-existent person, that pre-existed creation. But we are going to basically agree with the idea that the Logos, the Word, is a person in the prologue of John's Gospel. But we're disagreeing with the idea that in the beginning directly describes the Genesis creation or some time of eternal past. So we disagree with the idea in the beginning of John 1, 1 describes eternity past or creation. But we agree with the idea that the Logos, the word, describes the person, Jesus, the Messiah. Can I add something here Please. too, Bill? Yep. One thing I want to point out too about context is that it's really important that we understand that the fourth gospel itself is the primary context. The other language used in the prologue itself is the immediate context. Because what I see a lot of interpreters, both scholars and lay people, one of the things that I, I see that's become kind of a bad habit in terms of methodology is that people will read in the beginning was the word and then they'll quickly move away from the context of the prologue and the wider context of the fourth gospel and they'll go back into the Old Testament or into the wisdom literature and they'll go looking for a definition of the term beginning or the term logos, which is translated word in John 1.1, by framing it with the wider context of those other sources. And that's a flawed approach because we have to be very careful with the fourth gospel because, number one, we don't know who wrote it. We also don't know when it was written. It could have been most likely written any time in the first century after the death and resurrection of Jesus because the content of the book doesn't give us any hint that it was written much later. We also don't know who the audience is. We don't know who the writer was writing the book to, we don't, or we don't know who the book was spoken to. And those are critical things to think about when you're doing exegesis, because once you start framing a context for the book that, that relies on external sources that aren't corroborated, or you start referring to a late date, for example, of the book, when we don't have any dates and we don't have any other information in the New Testament where another writer was aware of the content of this book or something that we can use to establish a date, then any argument that's built on that foundation is, is basically a house of cards. So we have to be careful not to approach the prologue after trying to frame a wider context for it that's based on information that we can't corroborate. As you pointed out, Bill, we don't even have the word wisdom used in the fourth gospel or any of the John letters. So when I hear people emphasizing some relationship between wisdom and logos in the fourth gospel, there isn't any comparison of wisdom and, and logos language in the fourth gospel itself. Mm -hmm. So it's presumptive to think that the writer of the fourth gospel had to be using logos as a synonym for wisdom. We just don't have that connection. 
Um, we also have to be careful because we don't know if this writer had any knowledge of wisdom literature. Yes, there are some similar words used, but the fourth gospel has very basic Greek vocabulary and it's very repetitive and it's very common Greek vocabulary. So it's just as likely that some of the language is used coincidentally. There's nothing that requires it to uh, have an interdependence on other Jewish literature or wisdom literature. And of course, the, we know from the fourth gospel that the writer was aware of the Old Testament because he quotes it and he mm -hmm. refers to various figures in the Old Testament. However, the book is written in Greek. So the idea that, that uh, the writer had to be defining Logos as Debar in, from the Hebrew is not, is not necessarily the case because we don't have Hebrew in the fourth gospel. Others will appeal to the Memra, which is an Aramaic concept. We don't have any Aramaic version of the fourth gospel. We don't have any use of, uh, of Memra in the fourth gospel. So anything built upon referring to those external sources and relying on them to define terms is just not a good approach. We're better off using the immediate context of the prologue and the rest of the fourth gospel to determine what this particular writer, whoever he was, whoever he was writing to, was trying to use the language to express uh, to those who heard it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if I can sum up with what you said briefly, you can tell me if I am doing it correctly. It's a basic rule of biblical interpretation to, to interpret the book from within the book itself. The author is his own best interpreter, and then from other biblical literature. Is there an agreement in the New Testament with our interpretation of the Gospel of John's prologue? In other Johannine literature, we might start with, and then other literature in the New Testament. And the Old Testament, it's better to interpret any biblical text from within the Bible itself, rather than superimposing extra-biblical ideas or literature on the text. It's not good methodology to bring in, to assume that the author knew, for instance, about the, the idea of the logos from Philo, a Jewish writer in Alexandria in, in the first century BC, AD. We can't take the idea of logos from Philo and say, oh, see, this is what John means by logos, because that's what Philo meant by it. That could be totally, totally off base. Maybe it's right, but the better way is to stay within the biblical text itself. Let John tell us what logos means. Is that right? Is that basically what you're saying? Yes, because we don't have any evidence in the primary context of the prologue or the fourth gospel that the writer was even aware of Philo or what Philo had written. Mm -hmm. And keep in mind, Philo is one particular individual whose writings happen to have been preserved. Mm -hmm. We can't assume that Philo represented what all Jews think. See, sometimes... Oh, he definitely he, did not. That I can yes. say. <laughs> and sometimes, sometimes when people approach the prologue, they oversimplify things. And they use terms like Second Temple Jewish literature or uh, the Jewish mindset or the Hebrew mindset or culture. And people don't realize that a term like culture or mindset is impossible to, to quantify. We don't have any Jews from the first century or Samaritans or 
Greeks of the dispersion, other groups of Israelites mentioned in the fourth gospel. We don't have any access to, to them to, to determine you know, how, what their mindset was when they read this, this kind of thing. We can't ask them if they knew who Philo was or if, if anyone had ever read any material from Philo to them. So we have to really be careful not to, to narrow the focus so much that it's, it's beyond reasonable consideration. We just don't know. We don't have enough. When I use the word corroboration, what I'm referring to is we don't have specific references to a lot of this external material that is being imposed upon the fourth gospel to try to reframe its context and in some cases even redefine the terms. Okay, I'll push back on you a little bit later on the whole idea of a Hebraic mindset or not. I think sometimes it can be helpful. But let, for now, let's go back to the text in John 1 1. Right, we didn't read it. Let, let me just read translation of it. A lot of the translations are very similar. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And oftentimes this verse is broken down into three parts. Right? John 1 1 a. That's in the beginning was the word, and then 1-1-B, and the word was with God, and then 1-1-C, and the word was God. So we started to talk really about the first part, John 1-1-A, when we said in the beginning. The beginning refers to a new beginning, Jesus' ministry, what God is doing as a new beginning. I think it's a new creation. We can talk more about that later. But let's go on in that phrase. In the beginning was the word. What else would you say about that sentence? In the beginning was the word. Well, the, fir the first place I would start with this language is, is looking at how it's used by the writer of the fourth gospel himself. Mm -hmm. So we've already discussed the beginning. We can go into the fourth gospel and even the John letters, and we can see that the beginning is used by the writer numerous times to refer to when Jesus was with his disciples. Right. I think we okay? got that and covered. And I don't want to elaborate yep, on that. Yep, we got that covered. Now, yep. when, when we get to the word was... Okay, one thing that's often overlooked here is that this form of the verb aimi, okay, which is the same verb that's translated in other places as I am, this is in the imperfect tense. And sometimes interpreters will claim, well, it's in the imperfect tense because there's an implication of eternal preexistence and that um, uh, this particular person, in the case of Trinitarians, who would agree with us that it's referring to a person here in John 1, 1, the word. And they'll make an issue out of the tense of that verb. But one thing that's often overlooked is, is that there is no aorist tense, or what we usually translate into English as a simple past tense for this verb, aimi. So the reason the writer uses the imperfect verb is not with necessarily with the intention of unlimited duration, but simply because that was the, one of the only options that he had. So he's simply saying that something was in the beginning and there's no implication of an eternal duration or anything in terms of the greek grammar in terms of this use of the verb form hain so i think that's important to point out at this point okay whenever the all the hain does is associate the word with whenever the beginning was so when we have different options for the beginning we have a different implications for the verb was. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's important. It's something that I don't really hear discussed that much, is that the prologue in the, of the Gospel of John is basically translated into in English, and I think in the Greek too. It's, it's past tense. He's recording something that happened. 
we don't really have a present tense verb, if I'm not mistaken, until verse 5. We're just going to say the light shines in the darkness. The word shines there, if I'm not mistaken, is a present tense. That means it's still continuing to do so. But, but otherwise, John is describing this as something that happened. And I really think that's because the author, he knows that Jesus Christ has been resurrected from the dead. He's going to end up, the book itself, the climax of the book is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And even in this prologue, he ends up with uh, the only unique son in the bosom of the Father, making God known, which is, I think, kind of a resurrection text. So he knows that Jesus has already died and been raised from the dead by God. So I look at this as the author is saying, look, here's what happened. This was a real event on our earth. I'm a witness to this, as he says later in the book. I saw this stuff, as he says in if it's the same author in First John. I touched this. I heard it. It's something that really happened on our earth. And I think that past tense description in this prologue narrative is that. It's not, as you mentioned, some idea of some eternally existing Rather, it's something that happened. It's done in his eyes. Do the Greek tenses hold that idea? Yes. And I think one point that you made here would be, would be good to um, relate to the way you mentioned earlier about structuring the prologue into three different sections. For example, you have, as you just noted, in John 1.5, you have the present tense where it says the light shines in the darkness, which was preceded by a lot of uh, past tenses. Same thing happens in verse 12 in the section John 1, 6 to John 1, 13. You have this, these uses of the past tense, but then all of a sudden in John 1, 12, we have those who believe in the present in his name. And then, of course, in John 1, 14 to 18, as you pointed out, we have past tense verbs reiterating things about the disciples' experience with John the baptizer and Jesus during his earthly ministry. And then in John 1.18, it becomes the only begotten God who is presently in the bosom of the Father. So I, I think that, that helps. I don't, I, I don't want to interrupt you, but I'm going to, eventually I'm going to disagree with you on that translation. But go ahead, finish your, your idea. Okay. I'm just saying that you can, if you follow, for example, the New American Standard Version, which I was citing from, mm -hmm. you can see that at the end of each section, things are brought into the present. That's After he's been reiterating historical information for the mm -hmm. in, in the previous verses of of each section, but go ahead and make your point. I'd I'd like to hear your point. Well, on John no, Lee. we're going to leave one eighteen for later. I would just okay. say for now, <laughs> I think we are both going to agree that the one of the main topics of the prologue of the Gospel of John is the relationship of John the Baptist to Jesus the Messiah, and that's what this author really wants to start out describing because in his eyes the author's eyes john the baptist is a very significant figure i think that the author probably was a disciple of john the baptist and as we see in the first chapter starting in verse 19 for instance people thought john the baptist could be the messiah there was a huge following you know from secular literature josephus describes thousands of people that followed john the baptist there are so many that followed john the baptist that herod antipas the ruler of Galilee and Perea, thought that John the Baptist could raise a political insurrection against him. So John the Baptist was a significant figure, and people were wondering about the relationship of John the Baptist to Jesus. And much of the prologue 
much of the beginning of the Gospel of John, too, describes or clarifies, defines the relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus. And therefore, John's going to come into play in each of the three chapters that we see here in the prologue. I really like your point, Rivers, about the tenses here, where we see a little introduction of a present tense verb in each of the three paragraphs. After really a historical narrative, you might want to say, it's pretty abstract in the first paragraph, who the word Jesus is. But you get that present tense verb in there to to bring it, in a sense, up to date. This happened. Now look at This happened. Now, believe. That light is still shining. Believe. This happened. He says it again. I believe. So that's, I think that's a, a good insight. Now, let's, let's go back to verse 1, unless you've got something else you want to say. We know that the writer of the book is anonymous, and he refers to himself as the disciple and as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And just to go back quickly to your point, we do have a couple of disciples that are mentioned in John chapter 1 when it begins to talk about the relationship between what John was preaching and the identity of Jesus Christ, and one of those disciples is anonymous. Mm-hmm. So to your point, it's it's reasonable to think that perhaps it's the same disciple. Now let's go back to John 1, one where in the beginning was the word. I would like to make this point, and here's where I'm going to push back a little bit on what you said about the Hebraic mindset. I think that anybody who was familiar with the biblical text that's a Hebraic mindset. If you're familiar with the, the biblical text and biblical ideas, would see very quickly that John is not describing the Genesis creation directly. With about the third word here. Because in the book of Genesis, it says, in the beginning, and then we have the verb created, God. Right? In the syntax, the word order in Hebrew often is the verb first. In English, we don't put the subject first, right? We say, in the beginning, God created. But that's not the case in Hebrew. Main Hebrew syntax is, in the beginning, verb created. Hebrew is very much an action. It's an action-focused language. The verb gets brought to the front of the sentence, and the subject is after. So the Hebrew Genesis account of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, is, in the beginning, created God. Now, all of the prologue of the Gospel of John the word created is not there. It's simply not there. Neither of the main words for created are there. There are two main ones, right? The word for to make and another one for create. They are not in John's prologue. So it's strange to say, whoa, John's talking about the Genesis creation when these words for create and make are not in prologue. We are going to have a word that's in Genesis 1. We'll get to it. The main word simply to be, to become was. That's going to be in there. And that's another allusion to Genesis. But I think if somebody's familiar with the biblical text, and that's what I would call a Hebraic mindset, they will say, oh, you know, when they first hear in the beginning, oh, he's talking about Genesis creation. But if you don't have created God in that next sentence, no, you know this may be an allusion to Genesis. But the author of the Gospel of John is not describing Genesis creation directly. In Genesis Chapter 1, verse 1, it's, in the beginning, created God. You're reading John. I think anybody with a real Hebraic mindset is curious. Oh, is this guy talking about Genesis? No, he must only be alluding to Genesis. 
by the very word order. He doesn't say in the beginning, you know, God did this or God did that. No, in the beginning was the word, he says. So that's telling us that this beginning is not the Genesis creation. I, th I think another point I would make, too, along those lines is that oftentimes if we're looking for a particular structure or a particular illusion, we can kind of overstate the evidence a little bit and, and uh, come to think in our own minds that something is a lot more obvious than it really should be. For example, you're alluding to the fact that, you know, there is an arche in the beginning in Genesis 1-1, but there is no heavens and earth. There is no term for create, which would be katizo in Greek. In it doesn't appear in the prologue. Um, we also don't have most of the other information that's involved in what was actually being created in the heavens and earth in Genesis chapter 1. We do have the beginning in the prologue. We do have light. We do have darkness. Those are terms that we find in Genesis 1. But most of the other language and the way it's used in Genesis 1 isn't found in the prologue. So I think we have to be really careful not to take the little bit of, of uh, terminology that might hint or might allude to the Genesis language and assume that it's a commentary on the, the, the Genesis creation. And I think that's another place where there's a, uh, a fallacy that occurs when uh, people look too hard to find the Genesis creation in the context of the prologue. And the prologue is, is written at a different time and, and introduces the book of John, which is about this brief historical period from the time of John's baptism, beginning in John 1.19, to the time when Jesus was with his disciples after the resurrection. So I think when we look at the prologue as referring to the same limited time frame that we find throughout the rest of the book, I think it's a better option because we don't have enough to connect it to the historical time period of the Genesis creation, either grammatically or contextually, but it's, but all of the language is reiterated later in the fourth gospel, beginning, light, darkness, word, and explicitly numerous times identified with Jesus himself as well as the condition of the people during his public ministry, the darkness, as well as the message that he himself was bringing to the people and that they were obligated to uh, respond to, which is the light. So I think it's much more probable that we should be defining these terms by the way they're consistently used by this writer himself throughout the rest of the fourth gospel, which also fits the historical context of the prologue. That's why I think the approach that we're taking is, is uh, an approach that needs to be discussed and needs to be developed further because a lot of people haven't given it due consideration. It's a very good point. In, in addition to that, not only are there allusions to Genesis chapter 1 in John's prologue, but I think that there are allusions to other parts of the book of Genesis. I think there's an allusion to Genesis 22 here with the father and his unique son. This is Abraham and Isaac typology, if we can call it that. There's also allusions to the Exodus account, where you have Moses specifically mentioned in uh, verse 17. But the light and darkness is a theme of the Exodus, too. God's people had light. There was darkness over Egypt. So it's not only Genesis typology. It's not only allusions or connections to Genesis that we see in John's prologue, but it's also 
to other parts of Genesis and to the book of Exodus and probably other books. We'll stop there for now, and Lord willing, in a future podcast, we'll look further at John 1.1 and discuss what is the meaning of the word, word. In the beginning was the word, or the Greek word logos. And if Jesus is the logos in the prologue to John, why isn't he called the word or the logos again in the gospel? And then we'll also talk about the next phrase in John 1.1, and the word was with God. This is Bill Schlegel for the One God Report podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate it and write a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. That will help others to find us and share the podcast on social media. For constructive discussion, you are welcome to join the One God Report Facebook group. Yishma'u anavim ve'yismachu. The humble will hear and rejoice.